Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. Good morning. We um, we wanted to stop the singing a little bit sooner than we intended to. Um, because I have a very strong sense that the word I need to bring this morning has, and I'm choosing my words carefully, has an authority about it. Now, you will have never heard me say that before because I've never stood up and said that before. And so I want us just to still our hearts and our minds before God. And I want to give as much time as possible for what I believe the Lord wants me to share this morning before we head into a time of response. Just to keep a moment of stillness. Father, would you help us? We want to hear from you. Help us to hear the voice of God in the midst of the words I bring. And to receive, Lord, what is on your heart for us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So we began last week. Um, I wasn't here last week. I was in Chiswick. Um, had the privilege of speaking at a couple of Anglican churches, New Wine churches last Sunday. Um, but Nathan began our mini-series on the book of Joshua. And uh, Nathan spoke about Joshua chapter 1 and the, the calling of Joshua and Joshua taking over from Moses after Moses had died. And really, there's so much in the book of Joshua that we could easily spend two years on this but we're trying to do it in nine messages. So that's a lot we're trying to condense down. But before I come to the section I've got, I've got chapters two to eight. So make yourselves comfortable on these horrendous little chairs. And we'll go through those chapters. Before we do, I just want to say a couple of things about the book of Joshua. There's a Christological motif throughout this book. What does that mean? It's a theological phrase. It means that there's a paradigm, a picture that points us to Jesus. The meaning of the name Joshua and the meaning of the name Jesus have the same root meaning. Everything in the book of Joshua points to Jesus. Now, it's a story of things that actually happened. So all of the events that we read about in this book are historical. They happened to the people of God, to the Israelites. But as well as them happening in reality, every one of those events has a prophetic significance for the life of Jesus. So as we're reading through the book of Joshua, and I want to encourage you, please, read it. Read the whole book this week. It's not that long. 
But as we read the book of Joshua, every single thing that happens in that book, every encounter, every conversation points to Jesus. So they're real events, but they have a prophetic significance as well. Does that make sense? So Joshua is a prophetic forerunner for Jesus. It is also a very significant book for me in my ministry and my calling. In 1985, I believe it was, I was called to the ministry. I was at Spring Harvest, and I was listening to a lady who was a missionary, and her husband had been killed as they were serving the Lord on the mission field because he followed Jesus. He was put to death by people that opposed him. The harsh reality is if anyone chooses to follow Jesus, there will be opponents that will try and stop you. And this man was put to death. But as a result of his death, there was breakthrough. And the villages were one for Jesus. Are you willing to lay your life down like that? I was so struck by this message that Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband had been killed for the gospel, and she said, are you willing to lay your life down? And on that day, I felt the Lord say to me, you are going to be a pastor, prophet, and evangelist. I didn't know what any of those words meant. I'd heard the word pastor. The other two words I'd never heard, they weren't used in the church I grew up in. But I went forwards in that meeting, knowing that the Lord was saying, are you willing to lay your life down? It might mean that you die for this. It will certainly mean you face opposition every day of your life. Are you willing to live that kind of a life for me? And I went forward and said, yes. And the lady who prayed with me at the front of that room said, the Lord says you're going to be a pastor, prophet, and evangelist. The words the Lord had just spoken to me as I sat at the back of that room. And she said, you need to meditate on the book of Joshua because the ministry that God has for you, this book is going to be significant. You won't know for years why. What I've just shared with you came to me at five o'clock this morning in a memory. I've not thought of it for years. I believe today is a significant day for us as a church. Joshua chapter one, that Nathan unpacked for us, it was about the calling of Joshua. And, and the promise that they will take hold of the land, the promised land. In other words, the promises of God. What promises has God made to you? I know personally, there are things that God promised me many years ago that I have yet to see. When I've seen them all, then I need to prepare to go home. But at the moment, there's things I'm still waiting to see. Some of them I thought I'd have seen by now, but I'm still holding on for them, even though I don't see them. Others, many, many others, I've had the privilege of seeing the fulfillment of the promises of God in my life. What about you? What are the promises that God has spoken over you that you're yet to see fulfilled? See, Joshua, the book of Joshua, is about taking hold of the promised land, taking hold of all that God has promised. Generations before, the Lord had said to his people, I will lead you to a land that flows with milk and honey. I will give a land to you. I promised it to your forefathers. You will take hold of it. And that's what this book is about. Taking hold of the fullness of what God has promised. Amen? Amen. But the reality is that once the people got into the promised land, they had to fight and battle to take hold of their inheritance. It doesn't just come automatically. Just because you've arrived in a place that is flowing with milk and honey doesn't mean that you have the milk and honey. You have to choose to take hold of it. 
And we can, as a church, have arrived at a place that is surrounded with spiritual blessings and you might sit there and say, why am I not receiving them? And I say to you, take hold of them. And the book of Joshua is about how to do that. The book of Joshua is a challenge to take hold of everything that God has for you. It's about overcoming enemies. To take hold of the land and to take possession of it, the people of God had to overcome everything that opposed them. They had to overcome their enemies. And some of those enemies are internal ones. And some are external ones. Some of them, when I say internal, if you apply that to you as an individual, some of those can be things that go on inside of your mind. External can be things that other people say and do. If you apply that to the body, the internal ones, some of those can be people within the body that say and do damaging things. And it needs to be dealt with. And some of it can be stuff that's attacks that comes from outside. So Nathan helpfully began us on this process with Joshua chapter one last week. And I'm gonna take us through um, the next seven chapters. But I want to read, I want to pick out uh, chapter five, particularly to read to you this morning. And this is uh, chapter five, verses one to 12. It says this. When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had all crossed over, their hearts sank. Hallelujah. You see, for 40 years, they've watched the people of God wander around in the wilderness with nowhere to call their home. For generations before that, they saw them enslaved in Egypt. They were seen as despised in the sight of all of the people. They were seen as weak, helpless and feeble. They were mocked. And there was a mocking spirit that spoke against the people of God. But, but God. When all of a sudden the hand of God separated and parted the waters and the people who'd walked around for a generation in the wilderness stepped across into the promised land. Then the Amorite kings and the Canaanite kings, they were filled with fear, not of the Israelites, but of their gods because they saw the hand of God at work. That's verse one, by the way. Verse two. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All of those who came out of Egypt, all of the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All of the people that came out had been circumcised, but all of the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. 
For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their forefathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Hallelujah. So the place has been called Gilgal ever since. The word Gilgal sounds very similar in Hebrew to the phrase to roll away. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. Notice that they had not eaten anything of the land, even though they were in the land. Until after they remembered what God had done for them. Till they celebrated the covenant of Passover. And then there was a release of blessing from the land. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. They didn't need it anymore. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate of the produce of Canaan. They were in the promised land. Hallelujah. So let's roll back. Chapter 1. Joshua appointed told to lead the people, command to a life of radical obedience. He's told, do not depart from this book. Meditate on it day and night. Do not depart from it to the left or to the right. Meditate on it day and night so that you can be careful to obey everything written within it. And then you will lead the people to inherit the land, I promise them. Notice that the promises of God always come with a caveat. You will lead the people to inherit the land if you do not, meditate, do not depart from this word. You see, we're, we're so happy to take hold of the promises of God and sometimes we say, why am I not receiving all of the fullness of the blessings of God? Ask yourself, what is it that I'm doing? Where is my life compromised? Am I living a life of purity and holiness? Because the promises of God always have an if with them. If you obey, then you will be blessed. Let me just explain to you. The reason God wants us to obey is because he knows what's best for us. And if we do anything other than fulfill the promises and the commands of God, actually it's going to damage us and God doesn't want it. And when sin comes in, sin separates us from God and that breaks the Father's heart. That's why he takes this stuff so seriously. You know, when the people crossed over, chapter two now, the leaders were told to take a stone from the wilderness side and, and to carry it across the Jordan and to set it down in the land of promise. That which we carry from our past 
needs to be laid down. That which you are carrying from your past, from your time of wandering around and from the time of being enslaved to other stuff in this world, all of the stuff that we carry has got to be laid down before we can take hold of the fullness of the promises of God. And when those leaders had laid down those stones, there was 12 of them, one to represent all of the tribes of Israel, so all of the people. When those stones had been laid down, Joshua said to the leaders and to the people, when your children ask you what these stones are for, you remind them of the story of what God has saved you from, what God has done for you. There is power in testimony. It is so important that we remember significant events in our pilgrimage. The people of God were constantly throughout the pages of Scripture told to remember what God has done. They were told to focus and remember those significant life journeys, those milestones. This year, 2019, is a very, very significant year for me personally. There are some significant milestones for us as a family this year. And I take those unbelievably seriously because of the faithfulness of God. I've been looking forward to this year for a long time. As you know, it was mentioned a few weeks ago, we've been here 15 years leading this church. That is a significant length of time. And when you look back over the history of this church, 170 odd years, I'm the third longest serving minister in the life of this church. Several of them only did two or three years. Many of them. A couple of them did less than a year. So for me, that is very significant. And it's significant for us as a church. This year, I will celebrate 20 years since I got ordained. That, for me, is a very significant milestone in my life. The day that I got ordained was the same day as I gave my heart to Jesus in 1980. I didn't realise that until the day of my ordination, suddenly remembered. It wasn't planned. Well, it was, but not by me. Those are significant things. For us as a family, this year, in in a few weeks' time, we will celebrate our oldest child's 21st birthday. A few weeks after that, we'll celebrate our youngest child's 18th birthday. Those are significant rites of passage, and they should be marked and celebrated. Because God is a God who likes to remember and to celebrate. Why? Because he is a covenant-keeping God. Let me explain what I mean by that. I want to read to you one of the Ten Commandments, the third one. Exodus 20, verse 4, if you wanted to look it up. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on the earth, beneath, or the waters below, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Listen to this. Punishing the children for the sins of their parents 
to the third and fourth generation. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who keep my commandments. Love is always more powerful. Amen? Amen? Love is always more powerful. And we love to focus on that truth because we're very uncomfortable with focusing on the other truth that says God will punish. He is a covenant-keeping God. That means that if God says something, it happens. That means that our sin has an effect not only on our lives, but on the lives of those who follow after us. It's called generational sin. People talk about generational curses. Some of the stuff that you may be struggling with in your life may be because of your own stuff. But it might be because of something that's gone on in the generations before you in your family line. Because actually the sins of the fathers are meted out upon the children. Because there is an effect. Covenantal words have enduring power. What have you spoken out over your own life that has turned into be a curse that you live with? Maybe it's because of something you've experienced which was horrible and painful and shouldn't have happened to you. But our responses to those life events can bind us for the rest of our lives and they can bind the generations that follow us. What have you spoken out? I will never let God put me on the floor when someone prays for me. I will never speak in tongues. I said that one. I had to repent of that and get it broken off me. What are the things that people speak? I'll never trust men. Sometimes people do things that are horrific and we hurt as a result of things that are said to us. You know, people make these declarations and they're a covenant and they speak them out and they speak them into being. I'll never trust men. And then they wonder why they're having failure after failure after failure in their relationships. I'll never trust God again. How's that one working out for you? You know, churches are filled with people that are just so hypocritical. And these pastors that think they're six foot above contradiction. I will never trust church again. I'll never trust that pastor again. I'll never trust that brother or sister again. I'll never let them speak into my life. I will never let them get close to me. Those friends are curses. And we speak them out over ourselves and over one another. And they damage us, but more importantly, they damage the body. Ah, but it's been done in secret and nobody ever knows. Ah, well, we'll come back to that. Covenantal words, those words we speak. God takes you at your word because he is the word. And his word is truth and life. And he expects the same of us. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death. James chapter 3 talks about the power of the tongue. What we speak comes to pass. 
what you speak in the secret hidden place where you think nobody else knows about it, Father sees every single word. Let me give you an example. This can be an individual thing or it can be a corporate thing. In 1973, Fleet Baptist Church, as it had by then become known, it wasn't a Baptist church, by the way, when it started, but by then it had become a Baptist church, made a decision. At the time, some of you know this, charismatic renewal was happening across Europe. And Fleet Baptist Church was concerned about this charismatic renewal, this move of the Spirit. And it called it radical Pentecostalism. And I have in front of me uh, an extract from the minutes in 1973 where the church made a decision that any minister, they were looking for a minister at the time, any minister who was considered for the pastorate, would first be questioned about their beliefs regarding radical Pentecostalism to make sure that nobody brought Holy Spirit into this church. I added the bit about to make sure, by the way. But that's the implication. Pam was in that meeting. If you want to know the accuracy of what I have just said, ask Pam. She was there. As far as I know, she's the only person in the room who was in that meeting. As a result of that, she and her husband left the church. Forty years later, in 2013, we as a church said, we choose to embrace the fullness of who Holy Spirit is. And Pam had just rejoined the church after 40 years. The book of Joshua has prophetic significance for this church. We did an act, a public act of repentance as a church as a result of that, breaking the covenant that we had made because God takes you at your word. Redemption is not automatic. The blood of Jesus is enough to break every curse, but we have to choose to take hold of it. There have to be battles to take hold of the promised land. So chapters three and four, they cross over into the land. Chapter five, circumcision at Gilgal. Circumcision is about being set apart and marked out as holy, belonging to God. Physically, it's about cutting off something that we were born with. Natural desires sometimes have to be cut off. Sometimes there are things in our flesh life from our past that need cutting off us. And the process is painful, but healing comes. And we need to be those that say, Lord, we've wandered about for long enough. We have as a church passed over into the promised land and we've been dwelling in the land, but now it is time to take hold of it. I don't want to just live in the land that's surrounded with milk and honey and not have any milk and honey. I'd rather be in the desert where I can't see the milk and honey. What is it 
that needs to be cut off in the life of this church? What is it that needs to be cut off in your personal life? Where are those covenantal promises? Where are those words that have been spoken? What is that stuff that is hidden that needs to be dealt with? Before Rachel and I got married, we knew that I needed to deal with some stuff from my teenage years. I didn't want to enter marriage bringing all that stuff into our relationship. And I, you know, I had a bit of a problem with alcohol. I had a small problem with drugs. It wasn't anything major, but it was enough that I wanted it dealt with before I entered into marriage. And so we sat down with a couple of friends. The four of us sat down. We were young then, so we sat on the floor. And we got a large saucepan. And we got a ring binder notelet, you know, those dictation note things. And we prayed. And everything that popped into my head, we wrote on a piece of paper. We tore it off and just put it next to the, the pot on the floor. And when nothing else was coming, we went through those things one by one and prayed for them. You know, so there were things like, you know, alcohol consumption. There's nothing wrong with consuming alcohol, by the way. Nothing wrong at all. Abuse of alcohol, when it lets you grip you, that's the problem. And drinking alcohol to numb the pain or drinking alcohol to make yourself feel good, drinking alcohol just so you get a high, that's a problem. And that's what I was doing. I wasn't getting drunk, I was just drinking too often. I mean, I did get drunk. But actually, it was just, you know, do not have anything above God. And so we prayed through each of these things. And we just, you know, I asked for forgiveness and I repented of each of those and we screwed them up and put them in the saucepan with the intention at the end of the evening of setting fire to them, just as a prophetic sign that it was dealt with. As we wrote these things down, this phrase came to me. And the phrase was, Masonic influence. I had no idea what that meant. So I wrote it down because it popped into my head. And as we started to go through these pieces of paper, um, I pulled this one out that said Masonic influence. And the others in the room said, what's that about? Where, you know, I said, I don't know. And Rachel said, well, it's obviously something to do with the Masons. Do you know anything about the Masons? And at that time, I didn't. I do now. I said, no. She says, well, if you've got Mason stuff in your family and he's dealing with, have you? I said, not as far as I know. No. She says, well, it's come up. Let's deal with it. So the four of us spent about 40 minutes praying in tongues. And it was a hot evening. It was June. And the temperature plummeted in the room as we prayed. Ice cold. We prayed for 40 minutes. And at the end of that 40 minutes, suddenly the temperature rose back up to normal and there was a, a distinct smell of burning sulfur in the room. I had no idea what had happened, but we knew something significant had happened. We've been married 23 years, so that must have been about 24, 25 years ago. I don't know exactly when, I'm getting a nod. A few short years ago, maybe about five years ago, maybe about 10 years ago. <laughs> Either that or she's just praising the Lord. We were visiting my parents for Christmas. Mother appeared with um, a ring binder. Um, and she said, this is my family tree. My cousin's put together. Do you want to have a read through? So we had a read through. And Rachel said to me, you've got to read this. The last page was a picture of my great-grandfather, who it turns out was a grandmaster of a Masonic lodge in London. We traced down from him that every couple descended from him had lost a child, without exception. And I'm talking about families of 12, 13 children, each family. It's a big family. Almost all of the marriages had ended in divorce. 
there are curses that are pronounced when you become a mason. And you speak them over yourself. They call them blessings, but they're curses. And the higher up the masonry ladder you go, the more sinister those curses become. The death of a child is one, an end of marriage is another. We broke those curses off of our family line. And Rachel and I are the only couple descended from that great-grandfather of mine who had not lost a child at birth. The curse is broken. Do you get that? Yes. The curse is broken. When we speak things out, they have covenantal power and we think to ourselves, oh, it's just idle words. No, it isn't. There is no such thing as an idle word. And those curses are visited upon the children for the third and fourth generation. And they need to be broken in the name of Jesus. So often when we're having problems in our lives, we assume it's just our own sin, and it might be. But it might also be stuff from your family line that needs to be broken in the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus is more powerful than any curse. And the death of Jesus is sufficient for us. But we have to go to the cross and take those curses and crucify them. And that's an intentional action. What about as a church? What are the things that need to be dealt with in this church? One of the things that we've noticed, and Rachel's been looking back through the history, is how short some of the ministers stayed. And we're trying to find out a little bit more detail about why. And Rachel's going to be studying the church meeting minutes, and Ros is helping her find those. She wants to go right back as far as we can and read every minute. But one of the things she's already found out is that there is a curse to do with finance over this church. Several of the ministers, the church refused to pay them because they didn't agree with them, so they withheld blessing. How can you expect as a church to be blessed if you withhold blessing from the people God's called to lead you? That's okay, we don't do that. Really? And if it's a curse, it needs to be broken. Not so the pastor lives the lap of luxury, although why not? You show me in the Bible where it says a pastor has to be poor, because it's not there. But I'm talking about for the blessing of the church. The other was that we noticed significant numbers of the ministers had to leave because of serious ill health. Haven't we seen that? It's got to be broken. If there's things over this church that are affecting the body, they need to be broken. And we are going into a season where we're saying, God, show us what they are and we will break them in the name of Jesus. Because now is the time for us to take hold of the fullness of the promises of God. We are in the land of promise. We are surrounded by milk and honey. And now is the time to take hold of all of the promises of God because all of the promises of God are yes and amen. Amen. So that brings us to chapter five and six. 
Jericho. Perhaps the most famous bit in the whole book, so I'm not going to spend long on that. Jericho was impenetrable. And some things we face just look too big for us. And Joshua withdrew and he prayed. And the Lord himself, Jesus appeared to him. It says it was the commander of the Lord of hosts. That's one of the names given to Jesus. Spoke to him. And he says, what do I do? And Jesus said, take off your sandals. Sandals pick up dirt. As we walk through life, we pick up stuff. Alison had a picture before I got up to speak about ash dropping in this room and landing on people and just getting on their clothes. As we go through life, we pick up stuff. And it's time for that to be cleansed. The stuff that you have picked up, the stuff that I have picked up, just by living life, it's time to be cleansed, church. Because purity releases power. And when Joshua said to the Lord, what message do you have for your servant? He said, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua obeyed and then the Lord gave strategy. After he'd worshipped, after he'd obeyed, then came the strategy and the Lord said, you simply wander around your problem praying. Do it for six days. Be absolutely at peace. Don't be anxious. But bring all things to the Lord. And six, the number six is almost completion. The number seven means completion. So for six days... Pray about it in peace. But do not stop short. On the seventh day, go around it seven times. And on the seventh time around, give a victory cry before you see the answer. When Jesus fed the multitude, he took bread and he gave thanks to God before the miracle happened. It's called faith. And so Joshua gave thanks to God and after he'd given thanks, the walls came crashing down. They ran in and they took the city. They eradicated the city and Joshua had told them, take everything in the city, the silver and the gold, it belongs to the Lord. Take all of it and bring it into the treasure house, the treasury of God, because it all belongs to the Lord. And they took the city and they took the silver and they took the gold and they brought it into the treasury of God and they presented it as an offering dedicated to the Lord. Hallelujah. That's called breakthrough. And then in chapter seven, the Lord said, right, now you can start to take other cities as we take hold of the fullness of the land. And the first one is Ai. Go take Ai. Ai. So Joshua sends out 3,000 men. That should have been more than enough to take the city. And they were totally and utterly defeated by the residents of Ai. And Joshua, knowing that it shouldn't have happened, cries out to God and says, Lord, what is it that has gone wrong? Why have we been so heavily defeated? And he says, there is sin in the body. There is secret sin. There is something that has been hidden that nobody knows about. And that was true. Nobody knew except one man called Achan. And Achan had gone into Jericho with all of the other soldiers and he saw the silver and the gold and he was impressed by it and he thought there's so much of it. Nobody will notice just a bit. 
If I just take some of it, nobody will notice. And he was right. Nobody noticed. In the midst of all the celebration of victory, he took some silver and some gold and he took it back to his tent and he dug a hole under his tent and he buried it, he covered it and put a rug over it. And nobody knew. But the Lord sees that which is done in the secret place. The Lord sees the conversations that you have when you think nobody else is listening. That destructive word you speak about another church member, the Lord sees it. That gossip that you engage in about the leaders, the Lord sees it. That thing that you carry in your heart towards the church of bitterness, the Lord sees it. And you think, well, nobody's heard it. Nobody knows how I feel. So it's okay if purity releases power, conversely, impurity stifles the flow of the Spirit. That is a biblical truth. And if there is something in your heart towards somebody else in the church, whether it be me or the person sat next to you, does not matter. If you have something in your heart that is not God-honouring towards someone else, if you've said something about someone that is critical or negative, if you have been derogatory about the church, then it affects the entire body. And the body will get defeat after defeat after defeat. Achan's sin was that he did not pay his tithe. Everything belongs to the Lord, he'd been told. We're told that the tithe is the Lord's. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. This is not a sermon about giving. But what's your attitude towards your tithe? Well, I'll give some money when the church needs it. It's doing okay at the moment. It's not what the Lord said. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. It's not your decision. It belongs to God. And the word of God says, if you don't do it, you're stealing from God. It's theft. I give my tithe to various different places. No, that's not a tithe. Your tithe is what you bring to the Lord in the church that you are a part of. If you want to go giving to other people as well, bless you, do it as well. You have the privilege of, on top of your tithe, giving blessings and offerings as well. And by the way, you can't outgive God. And Achan withdrew, withheld, sorry, that which the Lord had specifically said was to come to him. He withheld it, and it affected the whole body. didn't end well for Achan. He and his household and all of his possessions were stoned to death and burnt. Hands up if you're not tithing. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was a joke. It's between you and God. The Lord sees. But... It affects the body. They routed out sin. That was the point. That's why Achan had to go. They routed out sin. 
wrong attitudes have to go. Our hearts and motives have to be right before the Lord because if they're not, we're damaging the body, whether you're not, whether people are aware of how you feel or what you're saying or not, the Lord sees. And I'm saying to you, church, don't be an Achan because it will be exposed. And what the Lord is doing is preparing us as a church to take hold of the fullness of the promises of God, to take hold of the land of blessing. What has he promised us? He's promised us that fleet will be known for the healings, the miracles, the signs and wonders. He's promised us significant number of souls won for the kingdom. He's promised us that we will have influence in this town beyond anything we can ever imagine. And he's promised us that we will be used as an Antioch resource centre for the wider body of Christ in this region, this nation and around the world. Those are the promises of God. I believe them. I have given my life for 15 years to get this church to where it is now because I believe them. I haven't just done a job for 15 years, by the way. I haven't had a, a social life for 15 years because I take this so seriously. I believe what God promised. When I came here 15 years ago, I said to the church members meeting, this is where we are going. I am a card-carrying charismatic. I will lead you into the things of the Spirit. I want to see healings, miracles, signs and wonders and an outrageous number of salvations. They said, hallelujah. I said, you don't get it. I promise you, I said this, I promise you, half of you will leave within five years if you call me because you won't like the stuff that goes with it. Those of you that have been here as long as I have will know that half of the church has left. But hallelujah, as we have gone on, we have grown. And I bless every single person that has chosen to leave this church. I bless them with peace in the name of Jesus. I forgive them in the name of Jesus for things that they have said to me and to my family. I believe in church growth. Hallelujah. Every single congregation across this town has grown because we've helped grow them. I bear no ill will to those who have gone and those who have hurt me most and I have had to work through the forgiveness issues that I had towards them. I tell you, I've had to do it, and sometimes I still have to do it when people, even happened yes, uh, yeah, yesterday, where someone crossed the road to avoid me because they saw me, and they couldn't even be on the same footpath as me. And they left 13 years ago. And so I had to go through that again, and forgive again. Jesus said 70 times seven. I'm almost there. What is it that needs to be dealt with? This is a season where I believe this church is now ready to take hold of the fullness of the blessings of God. That's what the season is about. We're in the promised land. It's time to take hold of it. It's time to embrace the promises of God. But I believe what God is doing is purifying the heart of the church. He's dealing with issues that are deep, deep issues so that we are those with a pure heart because purity releases power. Joshua chapter 8. 
They were sent back to Ai again. Having dealt with their sin, the Lord says, now go. And Ai was totally destroyed. The name Ai actually means heap of ruins. It was wiped off the face of the earth. The place of ruination no longer existed. The place that destroyed the people of God no longer existed. Because God, through his people, was victorious. This time, the Lord said to them, when you take the silver and the gold, keep it. Keep it. Proverbs 13.22 says, a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. When we are obedient to God, blessing flows in the power of God and in the release of heaven's resources amongst the people of God. Maturity leads to a place of victory that actually removes the draw of the world altogether. Radical obedience is called righteousness. Righteousness is about purity of heart and it leads to a purity of life and purity releases power. So I say to you, is there secret sin in your life? If there is, deal with it. Get some help. Deal with it. If you're too pride, too proud to tell somebody about it, then that's sin. So deal with that. (laughs) But deal with it. You have pastorate leaders. You have pastors. You have connect group leaders. You have brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Deal with it. If there's someone you need to go to and ask them to forgive you for the way you have thought about them, deal with it. Let's take this seriously. And pray and say, Lord, is there secret sin in the life of the church, in the body? Are there things historically covenantal words that need to be broken? Is there sin from the past that we need to repent of? If there is, let's take it seriously. Because I really, really believe this church. God is saying, do you want to take hold of the land flowing with milk and honey? And I say yes. I say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I say to you, are you with us? And if you're with us, let's take this seriously. Let's ask God to show us, shine the light of his spirit into the areas of our hearts that we lock away. Because I genuinely believe that as we do this, we are going then to see a fulfillment of the promises of God, which will bless us to be a blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen.